0: Well, there was a story of some friends that gathered in a backyard for some food and fellowship. As the coals from the campfire burned down, the hosts pass out marshmallows and long roasting forks. And just as they passed out the roasting forks, those long forks used to roast marshmallows, the kind you get at Walmart, two fire trucks roared by, sirens blaring, lights flashing, uh, the, the fire truck stopped at a house right down the street, something that uh, our family is all too familiar with. <laughs> all 12 of the group raced out of the backyard, down the street where they found the owners of the blazing house standing helplessly as they watched their home burn. The victims of the fire glared at the group with looks of disgust. And suddenly the group realized why. They were still holding roasting forks with marshmallows on them. (laughs) Not very wise considering the situation. Now this story hits a little too close to home for me. As a couple of years ago, our house caught on fire and did about $180,000 worth of damage. And I remember after we got all the kids out and the many dogs and cats and goats and zebras and I don't even remember what we had, out, uh, my son Miles and my daughter Sophia, who are with us today, were standing there in front of our house with the fire, as the fire department put out the flames. Sophia said, man, I'm so cold, to which Miles replied, well, there's a fire, go stand next to it. <laughs> it was a wild time. And I remember our neighbors pouring out of their homes and giving us everything that we needed in the moment. I mean coats, blankets, food, money, etc. I mean, you name it, we were more than provided for. And thank the Lord that our homeowners insurance provided a, a complete restore of our home. Now, why do I say all this? If we're truly wise, if we exercise wisdom, the litmus test will come out in the way we treat our neighbors. And that's what this section of Proverbs is all about: how we handle our relationships. How we treat those around us. This section of Proverbs has to do with relationships to our neighbors. So by way of review, what is Proverbs about? Why was it written? What is the Holy Spirit trying to convey to us? Well, Proverbs is a workshop on wisdom. And by way of the Holy Spirit, Proverbs helps us take the nail of knowledge and set it with the hammer of wisdom. So what is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, knowledge is the gathering of facts and information. Wisdom is knowing how to apply those facts and information. Knowledge is information gained through experience, through reasoning, through acquaintance. Wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, what is right, and what is lasting. Psalms, in contrast, takes your heart to heaven, but Proverbs keeps your feet on the ground. Psalms is a book that takes you to your prayer closet. Proverbs is a book that you take to work. Psalms is a book that you take to the sanctuary of church. Proverbs is a book that you take to your area of your workplace. Now, as we'll see here, Solomon is instructing his son on four do nots in this section of scripture that we're studying this morning. And it will instruct him on how to deal with his neighbors, not only in a general sense, but also in a broad sense. If there is something we really lack in our culture today, it's that we don't know how to be neighbors to the people around us. We have no game at all. We don't know how to talk or deal with people. We don't know how to be a good neighbor in a general sense. And as Jesus told us in the parable of the good Samaritan there in Luke 10, Jesus answers a question of a Pharisee who wanted to justify himself before God. And the Pharisee asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor then? And he wasn't asking because he really wanted to know the answer. He was asking because he was testing Jesus in his acumen of the law. And so Jesus tells this story from a Jewish perspective of a Jewish man who gets beat and robbed. Jesus then describes how a priest, which is a Levite, both the man's countrymen and sees him and ignores him. Doesn't even stop to help him. And then Jesus describes the Samaritan who sees him, has compassion. He binds his wounds. He takes him to a hotel or a hospital, probably one of the same back then. Pays for his stay and his medical treatment. Promises to come back and look after him some more. Promises to pay out of his own pocket, expenses rendered. And this guy doesn't even know this man. And not only that, the guy that Jesus describes in the story is a hated, half-breed Samaritan. Jews and Samaritan were like oil and water. They just didn't mix at all. And can you imagine the look on people's faces when Jesus made the hero of the story a Samaritan? And I'll bet the room was quiet. And then Jesus asked a critical question at the end of the story. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the Pharisee responded, uh, and he said, he showed the one who showed mercy on him, and Jesus said, then go and do likewise. So the real question is, who's our neighbor? Is it the people who live next door to us, or the people we see at Earth Fair, or when we shop, or when we see people at work, or hang out at Amelies over coffee and dessert? The answer is yes. And our neighbor is everyone, even those we do not like or can't stand. Folks, you and I don't get to choose our neighbor. God does. In fact, I would venture to say that the Lord has probably put some annoying people in your life because He wants you to be a neighbor to them, to show mercy to them, to be kind to them, to learn how to love them. Those people that you're with at work, at school, The ones you feel uncomfortable around because they don't dress like you, act like you, have the same interests you do. In fact, you don't even like being around them. They make you feel uncomfortable. But consider this the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to the fact that you or I are not lovable at all. And Jesus didn't save us because we're lovable, He saved us for His own glory and His own purposes, and He made us lovable. And Jesus Christ, while we were his enemy, became our neighbor. He sought us out. He became a neighbor to us who exercised compassion and bound up and healed our wounds by his stripes. And he became a friend of sinners. Let me say it like this. It's really hard dealing with those people in your life. It's awkward but I think about why the Lord has sent you to them because they need him. And he's saying to you and to me, go and be their neighbor. He wants to teach you how, do you how to love the unlovable the same way he loves you and me. In the book of Jonah, God sent Jonah to preach the gospel to a very barbaric people. It's not that Jonah was scared to go. He just flat out said, I'm not doing it. I can't stand those people. They deserve the deepest levels of hell. And no matter how hard Jonah tried to run, the Lord brought him back. It's not like Jonah was the only prophet in town. The Lord could have gotten someone else. He could have, but the Lord chose Jonah, a reluctant prophet. So Jonah preaches a very simple message of repent or face judgment. The people of Nineveh, get, get, they get the message and they repent in ashes. And then Jonah goes into a sulking crybaby phase waiting for the Lord to still judge Nineveh. What's really hilarious is that after three days in that fish, some scientists and scholars believe his skin turned pale green sitting in those digestive juices. Now, why is that hilarious? Because when that fish barfed him up on the, on the, sea, on the beach there, the Ninevites worship Dagon, the fish god. <laughs> That's why you see in Veggie Tales. Yes, I watch Veggie Tales. What's wrong with that? I'm a grown man. So what? I'm secure. If you look at the Veggie Tale sermon or uh, cartoon, they were slapping each other with fishes in the Jonah story. So, anyway. <laughs> So with that as a background about gospel neighboring, let's get into our text. Now look with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 3, chapter 27 and 28. Solomon says this, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So when Solomon tells his son, do not withhold good from those who deserve it, it means don't withhold anything that it rightfully belongs to others. Now, the the idea is that we as believers, we have a holy responsibility to fulfill our obligations in helping and giving generously to our neighbors right then and there. The next verse is tied to that very thought. If you have the power to fulfill an obligation then do it right then and there. Don't wait. If someone has a need in their life and the Lord has equipped you to meet that need, then it is up to us to fulfill that ASAP. This verse directly addresses the temptation to send away those who need our help and asking them to return in hope that they will find help elsewhere and not come to us. Jesus Christ did not hold back his goodness to us in the gospel. When it was time, he gave it all when it was in his power to do it. And this motivates us from a place of joy and peace to fulfill our obligations to others the way he fulfilled it to us. Knowing that we have the spirit of Jesus Christ and in his redemption causes us to get excited to meet the needs of others. When it is in our power to do it. Proverbs 3.28 says this. Do not say to your neighbor. Go and come back. And tomorrow I will give it. When you have it with you. Leviticus 19.13. You shall not cheat your neighbor. Nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired. Shall not remain with you. All night until morning. Now in an agrarian society. Such as ancient Israel. God wanted workers to be paid. The same day. If those workers weren't paid. They couldn't eat. They couldn't care for their families. They couldn't take care of their own personal obligations. And that's what made Israel different from the nations around them. Heathen nations didn't treat people this way. I mean, you could work in a field in Moab or Assyria and basically roll the dice. There were no guarantees. The power was in the hand of the landowner. No wonder ancient Israel had so many aliens coming to work in their fields. They treated people fairly and honestly because of God's law. And God demanded that the people be treated fairly and promptly. The same works for you and I, brothers and sisters. If we have resources and talents that the Lord has blessed us with, it's not right to hold those back from those who need them. To buy someone groceries, to give someone a ride, to mow someone's lawn who is sick, to make someone a meal who needs it, to fix a website that is broken and outdated. Believe me, it's like the guy who owns the truck and they ask that guy to help them move. That's me in the web world. Hey, my website needs a little work. Could you... See, those resources and talents, they belong to him. They belong to him to be used as he chooses. And many times, he wants us to serve our neighbors with them. Many times... He's calling you and me to bring the kingdom of God into that person's life by way of service. As Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The year was November 2006. Two teams were on a collision course to play in the biggest college football game ever played. Number two, Michigan versus number one, Ohio State in what was dubbed the game of the century. The game of the century. Now I'm a big college football fan and I couldn't wait for this matchup. I went to the grocery store, I bought some snacks to prepare for the game. So so the day came. Tara and the kids were out somewhere leaving a quiet, empty house for me to yell and scream. Made a fresh bowl of pico de gallo salsa, some spicy chicken wings, and some blue corn chips. Got into my comfy pants with my sheep slippers. I turned the game on, and just as the announcers were going through the starting lineups, I look out my window and I see my neighbor John with a driveway full of furniture that he was trying to move all by himself. You see where this is going tried to ignore him, but the Lord would not leave me alone. Brett, get up and go help John. Now, John and I had conversations before, and if I were to be honest, he was pretty narcissistic. He had an eye for the ladies apart from his own wife. And i I just didn't like being around the guy. So I fought and I strained. <laughs> And I begged the Lord to leave me alone so I could watch the game in peace. But he wouldn't do it. So I went upstairs, changed my clothes, and I helped John move his stuff into his house. Believe me, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. Apparently, no one else wanted to either. Because he solicited the help from many of his friends and none showed up to help him. And... His words were, I'm kind of a hard guy to handle and I know why my friends ditched me and I'm grateful that you were here, Brett, because no one else would help me. That conversation began a conversation about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was an opportunity for me to have a friendship with John and to share God's love. Now, he never made a confession of faith, but boy, he sure heard about the gospel. And he even started telling his friends about his neighbors, the Sartains, who they needed to meet and and hear about God and the love of Jesus. And I just happened to grudgingly, grudgingly obey Jesus. Now, in comparison, the game of the century really didn't mean so much anymore. It was a blowout anyway. So gospel neighboring for you and I requires sacrifice. And inconvenience to make a real impact on our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, and our family. And I am certainly learning this and in process. It's hard, but the Lord will make it well worth it. And you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded. Look at verse 29. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason. When he has done you no harm. To devise a plan for evil means going and looking for a fight. It means looking for trouble. People should never devise evil against their neighbors or plan harm. That doesn't mean you blast their character on social media. That doesn't mean that you look for a way to demean them or destroy their reputation. Don't go looking for a fight. Don't form a scheme in your mind. Don't take advantage of people because they're of a different class than you. Don't major on the minors. Don't cause division just because you have a different opinion of someone else. And the Bible calls it sowing discord. The goal of biblical community is that we really love each other, have affection towards one another, have unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. You know, folks, we do not have the right to be right anymore. We are obligated to love the way Christ has loved us. And then Paul says, Don't contend with a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Wise people want to live peacefully with others. They're not contentious. They do not stir up debate. They don't stir up trouble. They don't manufacture problems. Neither do they go looking for something that will result in conflict. We all know people whom we find difficult one way or another, and we are called upon to deal with difficult people at some time or another. A difficult person may be one who is condescending, argumentative, belligerent, selfish, flippant, obtuse, or just simply rude. Difficult people seem to know just how to push one's buttons and stir up trouble. Dealing with difficult people becomes an exercise in patience, love, and grace. Now, there might be some of you who think about what you're saying, and your goal is to win an argument, not to win a heart. Let me say that again. Some of you, your goal is to win an argument, but not win a heart. You're so set in your opinions, you're forgetting the fact that your opinions are exactly that. Opinions and not truth. You are that person who stirs up strife with your mouth without ever considering how it affects others around you. You are the person who wants to argue about secondary issues of doctrine, politics, or whether Wookiees belong in the Star Wars Hall of Fame. Can I get an amen, Steve? (laughs) In your quest to justify yourself and prove yourself right, you end up destroying confidence around you. The goal of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not to win an argument, it's to win a heart. I heard it once said, it takes three years to build up a culture of unity in a church. It takes about three weeks to tear it all down. Unity is something that each of us need to protect and cultivate and build here at Hill City Church. It requires effort and sacrifice for that to happen. Now, people do some crazy things, but there's no place for the child of God to harm any of those around us. In fact, Romans 12 tells us to do do the opposite to do good to those who hate us, for in doing so we will heap hot coals upon their heads. And yes, there is a time to take action when threatened, but we also need to allow the Lord to defend us. Pastor Chuck Smith years ago said this, if you defend yourself, then the Lord will let you. (laughs) To plot any kind of revenge or harm on a neighbor is to violate the trust of the community. And that's why as Christians, we need to watch what we say and do as the truth of the gospel is at stake. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sow, sows discord among the brothers, Proverbs six sixteen through nineteen. Abraham Lincoln won the presidency of a divided country. There were four major candidates in 1860. Oh, don't you wish it was like that today? And Lincoln only narrowly received his electoral college majority. And among his harshest harshest critics was Edwin Stanton of Ohio, who opposed Lincoln's election, calling him the most horrible racial slurs you've ever heard in your life. And yet Lincoln did something that shocked everyone. He asked Stanton to serve as Secretary of War, reorganizing his, organiza- uh, reorg- his, he hired him for his organizational skills because they were greatly needed for the war effort. When Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton said, there lies the most perfect ruler of men the world has ever seen. With Lincoln's calm and peaceful demeanor and willingness to work with Stanton, it changed his heart, and Lincoln won him over. Lincoln could have easily, with all of his political clout, ruined Stanton's reputation and his career. But instead, Lincoln did the opposite and gave him an opportunity. And so too with us. As Christians, it's important to see those situations with our neighbor, not to plot revenge, but to plan reconciliation. The gospel tells us that we were the ones by the, way, by the way we lived in rebellion against Jesus and his people, that we were his enemies and Jesus became our neighbor. After all, it was Jesus who told Paul in Acts 9, "Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yet, instead of cursing us, he chose the cross and brought us into his family and gave us a place at his table. There's no room with a transformed heart of what Jesus has done to even think of the demise of someone else. Verse 31 Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Now, why would Solomon instruct his son not to envy here? Well, violent men produce a lot of worldly wealth and pleasures in this world. It's why movies like The Godfather or Goodfellows are so popular. It shows these mobster types gaining through cruel and brutal means towards others. And these men oppress people and enjoy the luxurious pleasures of life at the expense of others. And all of the, what these men gain have come at a high and costly price. They had to strive to gain, but they also have to strive to maintain. And these violent men can't enjoy all of these pleasures anyway. They're always looking over their shoulder and feel threatened. These people are an abomination to the Lord, as the scripture says right here. The Lord looks on them with great contempt and judgment and will deal with them accordingly. Solomon urges his son to quench the fire of envy in his heart because it leads to doing those oppressive things that violent men do. Sin begins with an inward desire that if cultivated ends in death, James 1, 14 through 15. The sin of envy has to be cut off at the roots. It has to be dealt with swiftly. D.L. Moody once told the fable of an eagle who was envious of another that could fly better than he could. One day the bird saw a sportsman with a bow and arrow and said to him, I wish you would bring down that eagle up there. And the man said he would if he had some feathers for his arrow. So the jealous eagle pulled out one of his, one of his wings, feathers, feathers from his wings. The arrow was shot, but it didn't quite reach the rival bird because he was flying too high. The first eagle pulled out another feather, then another. Then he had lost so many that he couldn't fly anymore. And then the archer took advantage of the situation, turned around, and killed the helpless bird. Moody made this application. If you are envious of others... The one you will hurt by most, the one you will hurt the most by your actions is yourself. In fact, Psalm 37, 1 through 2 says this Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Now, it's easy for us to look at evil men who prosper in our culture, to feel jealous. And as Christians, we struggle with the inequalities of the world around us. But we also must remember that those people are paying a far greater price and lose way more than what they gain. What we have gained in Jesus Christ far outweighs what others gain unjustly. We have eternal life and we have the Spirit of God. We have all that we need in Him. And all we need to to do is to learn to be content. In whatever state God has us. You see, the richest, happiest people in the world are not those who have the most, it's those who need the least. So for the devious person, says there in verse thirty-two, look with me, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are his confidence, are in his confidence. People who scheme, control, Manipulate, take advantage of others who are weaker and more vulnerable. Disgust God. That's what abomination means. It means a thing that causes distrust or hatred. Don't lose the gravity of this. We like to use phrases like God hates sin, but loves the sinner. And that's true. But here, scripture clearly says that God is disgusted by people who are like this. They're already condemned. Now, envy will chew you up and spit you out, turning you into a person that's corrupt and wicked. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it, young ladies, to envy the bodies of all these Instagram models. Time Magazine, September 16, 2021, says this. The title of the article is An, uh, The Harmful Impact of Instagram. An internal Instagram presentation from March 2020 seen by the journal said that when 32% of teenage girls felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. The journal also found that Instagram research showed that among teenage users who reported suicidal thoughts, 13% of British users, 6% of American users, trace those feelings to their use of Instagram. Researchers found that young women's self-image was especially badly affected by making comparisons between themselves and what they viewed on the platform. But in congressional testimony on March 2021, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg indicated to lawmakers that research had shown that social media apps had a social mental health benefits. I was born at night, not last night. According to researchers, platforms like Instagram can contribute to body image issues and depression because humans have an innate desire to compare themselves to others. People have always wanted to present the best version of themselves. It's just... That on the social media, people often present a very enhanced, unrealistic version of appearance. Ladies. Be careful. You are not what Instagram says you are. You are what Jesus Christ said you are. Well, Brett, why are you picking on the ladies? What what about the men? Okay. I'm going to pick on the men now. Young men. Don't envy what you see on social media. Don't allow it to bend your mind into its system. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, 3 million teenage boys between 12 and 17 had at least one major depressive episode connected to social media. 30% of girls, 20% of boys, 6.3 million teens have had an anxiety disorder according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Experts agree that this is likely on the low end since young people, especially boys, often don't talk about depression and anxiety issues to their parents or friends. Social media can create connectedness, but it can also isolate and make feelings of loneliness feel more intense as we compare our lives to those that are reflected online. It's important to remember That these social media platforms are a human highlight reel of everyone's life with posts about game day victories, prom proposals, summer vacations. But this can make boys feel like they aren't keeping up with their peers and creating a false sense of fear of missing out on what everybody else is doing. Young men, you're being lied to. The culture tells you what it means to be a man. Drink tons of beer, you'll be a man. Shove as many burgers down your mouth. You'll be a man. Go and work out and get ripped. You'll be a man. The images being displayed to you are a fantasy designed to make you feel that you cannot reach those standards and make you look within yourself causing damage. You are not what it says you are. You are what God says you are. And to us buried men out there, the standard of beauty, our standard of beauty is not uh, the girls we see on TV or on Instagram or any other social media. The standard of beauty is our wives. It's heavy, but it needs to be said. But it says that the upright are his confidence. Some translations say his counsel or fellowship with the upright those who don't envy but stick close to Jesus will have relationships, homes, mental health, blessed. Blessed because they are at peace with who God is, what he has done for them and who he says they are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. It says in Malachi 2.2, if you will not hear, if you will not take to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. The person who is who doesn't want to have anything to do with the Lord, the one who scoffs, who doesn't humble themselves before Jesus, they have a curse on their life. It's clear. It's clear. But he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. The person who has the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The one in whom the gospel has taken deep root. God doesn't curse. He blesses the one who walks with Jesus joyfully, happily. Because the, because the spirit of God has transformed them. They're the ones who are happy in the Lord. You don't have the need to chase after those things. Do you chase after the things of the world in hopes your soul will be fulfilled? Or do you seek Jesus in his wonderful face? Just Jesus. Let me ask you a question today. If everything was taken away from you right now and you had nothing left but Jesus, would he be enough? Would he be enough for you? Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Verse 34, verse 35 to the wise will inherit honor, but fools will get disgrace. Verse 33, and I'll close. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. What strikes me is the gospel in this verse. Verse 33, because Jesus substituted himself in our place, the Lord's curse fell on him and not us. Our house, our dwelling, our possessions, our sins were placed upon him willingly as a result. And God blessed us as if Jesus' house belonged to us. Verse 34 tells us that God scorned Jesus as if it were us. So that he could bless our humility as if it were ours. We inherited honor even though we didn't deserve it. All while he stood in our place and received the disgrace of a fool, which is us. Brothers and sisters, how deeply Jesus loves us. And what a wonderful neighbor we have. In Jesus, not just a neighbor, but a friend who has given us his father. And we have nothing to fear, but everything to rejoice. He went to such great lengths to be our neighbor and our friend so that he could make us a child of God. Through his stripes, we are healed. That is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our neighbor. Emmanuel, God with us, not God far from us. That you made your dwelling and abode among men, among your creation, so that we could dwell securely with you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Jesus. I pray that if anyone here is struggling with condemnation or guilt, excuse me, I pray, Father, You would release it now in an overflowing spirit of your grace and mercy. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.